with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Welcome to Marching Orders, a this week community news podcast series devoted to Central Ohio military veterans sharing their experiences. I'm Scott Hummel, Assistant Managing Editor at This Week. Let's get right to it. Our guest today is a U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel who served during the Cold War and in Vietnam as part of the 9th Infantry Division's 9th Aviation Battalion. He was in Nam during the Tet Offensive in 1968, in which North Vietnamese and Viet Cong forces engaged in a series of surprise attacks on cities and towns throughout South Vietnam and against U.S. armed forces and their allies. His decorations include the Defense Superior Service Medal, Bronze Star Medal, Meritorious Service Medal, Air Medal, Army Commendation Medal, Joint Service Achievement Medal, National Defense Service Medal, Vietnam Service Medal with four bronze stars, Republic of Vietnam Campaign Medal, Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross Unit Citation with Palm, two Overseas Service Bars, Army Service Ribbon and Overseas Service Ribbon. From Dublin, Ohio, Jeffrey Noble, welcome to Marching Orders. Thank you, Scott. Just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Jeff, your, your family, uh, what you did for a career and what you do now, and just some of the activities and organizations you're in. Well, I spent 25 years in the Army before, um, or sort of after some college. I didn't complete college before I went in. Um, and then I got my degree while I was still in the service. They sent me back to Worcester, and um, I got my degree there. Married uh, Jane, who is my wife of 46 years now. Um, we had two sons, um, Gregory, who's a doctor down in Cincinnati, and Kevin, who's a remodeler, home builder out in Denver, Colorado. After the military, I retired. Uh, essentially, my two sons were going to school in Cleveland, were still in high school. Uh, when I finished a tour up in Cleveland, and they wanted to send me back to Germany. Um, in those days, the dependent schools in Europe were pretty much a mess and not very conducive to uh, a good education, and they were going to St. Ignatius in Cleveland. So I decided it was time to retire, which I did. And after a short stint, at home in the jammies, learning how to type, uh, I joined the Huntington Banks and uh, moved to, I moved to Columbus. The one son still had two years left in high school, so he stayed up with his mom in, in uh, Westlake and finished out his high school, and then we all moved down here. And so I uh, spent about 15 years with Huntington Bank as a a product manager in the commercial side of the bank, dealing with businesses and all that. Um, and then retired out of there. Um, since then, I've kept myself somewhat busy. I'm a legionnaire, American Legion, VFW, uh, Vietnam Helicopter Pilots Association, Vietnam Veterans Association, and several other military-type 
organizations. Uh, I'm the commander of the Dublin American Legion. Uh, we have about 70 souls on board, and we stay fairly busy. Veterans Day, as you know, and we all get real busy. We do uh, ceremonies for, with the schools. We do our own ceremony, that sort of thing. You were born and raised in Hudson, Ohio, but graduated from the Bowles School in Jacksonville, for- Florida. How did you end up in Florida for high school? Well, my dad owned a machine shop. He and my uncle were partners. Um, dad had some health issues. He and mom always wanted to move to Florida. I had three older sisters. Um, they were, two of them were out of the house and one just had one year of high school left. And I think my uncle wanted to bring his oldest son into the business and dad said, well, there just isn't room for all of us. So why don't you buy me up? So we moved to Florida. We originally went to, well, we moved to Del Rey, uh, which is down on the East Coast. And I went to high school there for two years. And then for my last two years, I went to the Bowl School because I really wanted to go to the Naval Academy, hmm. uh, uh, which didn't happen. But um, I really got a good education at Bowls and really enjoyed my, my stay there. So, and you ultimately made it back to Northeast Ohio for the college, <clears throat> for going to college at the College of Worcester. And, and just for the record, how do you pronounce that, Jeff? Is Worcester. it Worcester or Worcester? It's Worcester. <laughs> and you ended up getting your BA in economics. What brought you back to Ohio? When was it right after high school? Yes. Um, again, the business um, called my cousin, who was had been brought in. Uh, decided it wasn't for him or whatever and pulled out and, and my dad had to get back and work the business again or else it would have just disappeared. So uh, we moved back, which was fine. Uh, I, growing up as a high school kid in Florida was pretty awesome. Oh, yeah, I imagine. <laughs> but, but, no snow, uh, no ice, <laughs> beaches. But... Uh, you know, then um, coming back for college was a good idea, too. <laughs> yeah, but then you ultimately joined the Army. Now, how did that come about? Was this while you were still in college? And why the Army? Because you had also mentioned that you actually were looking at the, the Naval Academy. And actually, I tried to enlist in the Navy. If you remember, the USS Wasp, John McCain was on board when they dropped a missile off of a a uh, fighter bomber yeah. and blew up a bunch of airplanes and had a big fire, lost uh, quite a few aviators, actually. So I tried to join the Navy at that point. I uh, went through the process, the screening, the tests, uh, went up to um, Gross Hill, Michigan for a demo flight, and a Navy captain interviewed me and said, you know, I'd really like to take you in, but without a degree, all you can do is be a navigator. Uh, we want you as a pilot, so go back and get your degree. Come back and see me. So I went back to school. I didn't really apply myself real real well when I first started at Worcester. Uh, had a good time. but So I finally told my parents, you know, I'm wasting your money. I went out and got a job actually working for my father <clears throat> in the shop and kept I took a couple of night courses down at University of Akron, got my private pilot's license, 
and did that for about a year. And one day I just said, you know, this isn't really what I want. And so I went down to the local recruiter and said, uh, can I fly for you guys? And he said, yeah. So what year was this? Uh, that was 66. Speaking of 66, let's briefly talk about the Cold War. So you, you were in the Army in the late 60s and early 70s, and fighting was going on, but it was different. It wasn't large-scale battles directly between two sides so much as it was more of a series of proxy wars. What was your role in the Cold War? Well, you know, everybody was engaged in the Cold War if you were in a uniform to some extent. I was a pilot. I had flown in Vietnam and come home, and I spent a couple years down at Fort Benning, and then I went back and got my degree. And after I got my degree from Worcester, um, I got orders for Germany. So by that time, Greg had been born. So Jane and I and Greg eventually ended up in Germany uh, in a place called uh, Swabish Hall, which back in the divided Germany was the center of West Germany on the southern edge. It was right next to Bavaria. Great, great opportunity, great time. I mean, it was just all good. And then the assignments officer said, you need to find a tank. (laughs) I was an armor officer. Back in those days, they didn't have an aviation branch. And uh, they had developed a new theory that every officer had to have two career paths, one in his primary branch and one secondary. So my primary branch was armor, and so they said, you need to find a tank. So they sent me to a um, tank battalion, a 266 armor over in Baumholder. Baumholder was a city of 200 German residents 76 bars and about 3,000 American GIs. Wow. Uh, It was was something else. Anyway, we were decisively engaged in the Cold War at that point because our battalion's mission was, if the balloon went up and the Russians started coming, was to race to the Fulda Gap which was the most likely avenue of approach for Russian armor and to back up the units that were already in place up there. So we used to do map exercises and we'd go up, actually convoy up with a bunch of officers and spread out and look at positions and all that kind of stuff. Um, Very interesting. But even before that, uh, when I was uh, in the aviation assignment early in Germany, Um, we had what were called flight-following sites along the West German border with Czechoslovakia. And um, so I owned them at one point, um, and I used to go visit and um, see what was going on. And there was a demilitarized zone that ran along the edge of West Germany. And essentially we had... um, cavalry units that screened that demilitarized zone all the time. And every once in a while, an aircraft would go over there and get a little disoriented and be on the wrong side of the line. Mm. So the idea was our flight-following sites could identify every rock, tree, and 
whatever that was in that demilitarized zone. And if the pilot could see anything, uh, oh, you know, I see a big boulder next to a tree. Yeah, well, turn to X direction and get out of there because you're on the wrong side of the line. So, what, t- what type of technology were you using? Not very, <laughs> not very high tech. It was all radio, <laughs> FM radio. <laughs> a lot of protractors and uh, yeah, exactly. Angles, I'm sure, yeah. We would, our helicopters in those days, you know, you, we, we did have a, a magnetic compass and we had a um, uh, more sophisticated compass. But, you know, you, you had an ADF needle that would track a radio signal and that would get you out. Um, there weren't too many. I, I also owned a couple of airfields in Germany and we had um, Korean War era uh, radars that we used on the airfields that would help uh, aircraft land in, in bad weather. Uh, and these things were, <laughs> I mean, they were probably down more than they were up, but mm-hmm. when they were up, they were good. So so as you look back on the Cold War <clears throat> and some of the events that could have changed history, you mentioned Berlin, like the, the Berlin crisis of 1961 or the Cuban Missile Crisis of 62. What are some things that, that might surprise people, some things that, if they would have occurred, would have changed our nations and even the world's trajectory? Well, the, I talk about um, Tet. I mean, if you want to go there, um, Tet did change a lot of things. First off, basically, we won Tet. I mean, there were no more... Uh, North Vietnamese soldiers in South Vietnam after Tet, nor were there any Viet Cong. They were literally decimated. And you, you can uh, you can read some of the North Vietnamese literature, and it tells you that that they just militarily had no uh, no ability to respond anymore. And just for uh, just for our listeners, some background on Tet. This is the Tet Offensive he's talking about in 1968. This was no proxy or cold war. This was fierce. And the Tet Offensive was, that was a turning point in the Vietnam War. North Vietnamese forces and the rebel forces, the Viet Cong, they had uh, some 85,000 troops that were just attacking scores of cities and towns in South Vietnam. And they were attacking American and allied forces at the time, too. And uh, continue, go ahead and describe uh, that Tet offensive campaign. Well, uh, Tet was busy. Um, I flew helicopter gunships. Um, When I first got to Vietnam, we flew the UH UH-1 Charlie models um, that were the first helicopter specifically designed as a weapons platform. Looks like a Huey, but different structure, different engine, different transmission than the standard Huey, and built with hard points to hold all the, the weapons. Um, for our mission, they were great. We were basically contact and counter mortar only. So I would say 80% of my hours flight time in Vietnam was nighttime. With the UH-1C, you had four people on board. You had a crew chief and a gunner and pilot and co-pilot. So you had eight eyes out there scanning the horizon. And um, a lot of people in America don't understand what it's like to be in a third world country when it's pitch black. 
I mean, there is no ambient light, none. So all you see is a big black field out there. That's, you know, you really got to get down in it to, to see what's going on. Yeah, we had Ted Mosier in a few <clears throat> weeks ago, and he mentioned that it was, uh, it was so dark that whenever they were going through the rivers, he and his fellow troops would have to pretty much almost hold hands. They were so close they could reach out and touch each other. Right. It was so dark. So, uh, you know, um, we, we flew those missions. Well, we were, Bearcat is due east of, of Saigon, and the southern um, section of Saigon is a, basically its own little area or a city called Cholon. And Cholon was a hotbed. I mean, there were uh, Viet Cong all over the place. Obviously, Tet was underway when I arrived in country. Um, I reported into the 9th Aviation Battalion. Um, there was a major who said, well, I'm going to take over B Company, which was the gun company, and I'm asking for you to, to join us. So I did. Um, the first thing that got my attention, actually the first night I was there, um, we got mortared, and Bearcat hadn't been mortared in seven years. So we knew that the enemy was not far away. Um, the second thing that got my attention was the next morning, one of our teams, and we flew in teams of two, um, was warming up to take off and go on a mission. Uh, a storm came by, just a, you know, lightning rain quickie they shut down uh, unfortunately a lightning bolt struck the fox mic antenna which is a piece of wire sticking out of the tail um, and energized the whole aircraft uh, igniting the rockets mm. and about 12 of the rockets launched uh, even though they had been safe well the circuit breakers pulled because there was so much electricity in the aircraft, it just overrode everything. Um, and this is why you were stationed in the Shillon district? That's in it, well, I was, City? I was at Bearcat. This is right at Bearcat. Okay. Um, and um, the one rocket uh, raced through the revetment uh, into the tail of the lead aircraft. The rocket did not explode the warhead did not explode but it's a solid propellant rocket compressed and blew the uh, co-pilot and a, just sheared off his seat and hmm. sheared off the co-pilot um, the other three the the crew chief was all right the gunner broke his leg jumping out and the pilot lost an eye so uh, got my attention anyway the next day I know I'm out there on the Charlie pad and warming up, ready to take off and go fly to Chalone. So we flew missions over Chalone for hmm, two weeks. Our mission was a little bit different. We had a 24-hour 24 24-hour 24 requirement down at Dong Tam. So every third day, we flew down to Dong Tam, spent the night there, and then flew back. Um, we had a 12-hour requirement at one of our brigade base camps in Tan An, which was north of Dong Tam. 
And then on the third day, we would fly these missions into Cholon to help out other units. What were the majority of the missions? What was <laughs> Were they mostly uh, uh, combative in nature, or were they um, rescue in nature? What types of missions? No, no. These, we were flying gunships, so we didn't normally pick people up. Um, they were combat and counter-mortar um, most of the time after Tet had pretty much gone away. We moved to Dongtam, and essentially that 24-hour requirement, we would usually get called out two or three times in the 24-hour period because some unit was in contact and needed immediate support, or our base camp or one of the uh, fire bases or one of the other base camps were being mortared or rocketed, and we would be sent out to try and locate the the uh, source of the rockets and the mortars. Well, and you were part of the uh, the 9th Aviation Battalion was part of the 9th Infantry Division, which was known as the Old Reliables. So I'm sure uh, you were counted on quite a bit for that. Well, yeah, we had other names for it, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what was the most difficult mission for you during the Tet Offensive? I'm sure some of the terrain and the jungle alone and some of the areas, and like you'd mentioned, rice paddies to me earlier, I'm sure some of just some of the terrain made the task even more difficult. But what event stands out to you that you were just thankful it was over and that you got through? Well, we we also the Ninth Infantry Division had a brigade on the boats. We had the Mobile Riverine Force that uh, went up and down the Mekong and all the tributary rivers and canals, um, looking for enemy soldiers or uh, stopping infiltration, and Charlie was pretty smart. I mean, he could take a boat at night, start down a river, and the minute something happened, he'd sink the boat. Everything was all wrapped up, and they'd just duck into the mud on the side of the river, and then, you know, when the trouble was over or, or daylight ended, they'd raise the boat up again and float down further. Um, so it, it, probably the most difficult thing was coordination of all the elements that we used um, to combat the enemy. And I'm talking artillery, uh, Air Force aircraft, um, the, the soldiers themselves, uh, making sure they weren't shooting <laughs> the wrong direction or whatever. We had a mission one day where we were actually babysitting a mobile riverine operation going down a small river on the south side of the Mekong. And talking to the Navy was impossible in those days. You, you had two different radio systems and never the twain shall meet. So we always had to put a soldier on the bridge of the boat uh, with the, the leader of the operation who had a radio and that could talk to us. So we kept asking him about, do you have any support coming in other than us? Oh, no, 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 no. And then all of a sudden, big puffs of gray smoke. 
Well, there are artillery marking rounds. <laughs> so, so, so he wasn't so aware he, of the support that you well, actually yeah, had? He, he was, but he wasn't telling us. <laughs> so we back off and, you know, go someplace else for a little while because you'd, you'd just fly donuts around these boats while they slowly crept up the river. So we get back on station. The artillery barrage is over. Uh, we say, do you have any other support? No. So I had my Peter pilot over there flying the aircraft, and I'm sitting kicked back looking up through the greenhouse, which was a green piece of plexiglass up over the pilot and co-pilot seat. And I look up, and there's a B-57 Canberra bomber opening its bomb doors with the biggest bomb I've ever seen, <laughs> just about to drop out of this baby. And so we backed off again. Um, you know, getting shot at first time, always exciting. You look down, you see a little green dot. I think your definition of exciting is a little different from (laughs) (laughs) by the time you, by the time that baby gets close to your helicopter, it's about the size of a medicine ball. (laughs) So what about some of the towns that had been just destroyed by the north i mean had had you seen some of them well we didn't you know we were far enough south that we didn't see a lot of north vietnamese we saw mostly Viet Cong. Uh, a lot of people don't understand but um the vietnam war the, the the internal war the revolution or whatever you want to call it actually started in way south vietnam down in the human forest uh, that's where the Viet Cong originally started and, and gelled and started infiltrating further north. And um, <clears throat> so we were not too far from that area. So we had a lot of Viet Cong. Eventually, at the end of my tour, we started seeing more North Vietnamese because they, after Tet, things slowed down. We never attacked the North, which... Uh, had we done so, probably would have brought them to the the uh, peace table. So they were able to regenerate in the north, and then they started moving people down the trail and into the rivers. So at the end of my tour, actually about a month and a half before I left Dong Tam, we um, were attacked. Uh, they were all North Vietnamese, very well armed, uh, very well um, organized. Uh, and they tried to over overrun one of our perimeters. Um, they didn't, which was a good thing. Um, but uh, that tells you, I mean, a year before that, we would have seen nothing but black pajamas and mm-hmm. and uh, Viet Cong with AK-47s. I know it took several weeks for the U.S. and South Vietnamese troops to retake those captured cities, but they did. And Yet, even though the Tet Offensive ultimately was a North Vietnamese failure, it still was sort of a political and psychological victory for them, at least. How are you feeling about the war at this point after those cities were taken back? Did it did it feel like we were winning, or did it feel like you were surviving until it was just time to come home? No, I think we all thought, you know, after Tet died down, that had we moved north, at least bombed, um, which we didn't do, uh, that we could have brought them to their knees. And um, the South Vietnamese, at the, at, at the point of the end of Tet, 
we had the largest U.S. military presence in country that we ever had. In fact, the 9th Division, of which I was part, was the first unit to come out. And it came out because they thought after Tet, they had basically won the war. And so they started to down the size. The South Vietnamese Army was in the best shape that they'd ever been. They were, and we had other units. I mean, we had other countries involved, uh, Thailand, Australia, both of whom were at Bearcat, um, and that we'd had some missions with from time to time. Um, so, um, you know, I felt pretty good when I came home. Now, having said that, um, in retrospect, and I don't know that we knew it while we were in country, but Tet was the turning point as far as the American public was concerned. Um, they thought, you know, you ain't going to beat them because... There was they, a lot of optimism before Tet Offensive, and it, right. it really was diminished. Right. So, um, you know, when I got home, obviously, that's, you know, shortly thereafter, we started to see the erosion of public confidence and, and public support. So, You're listening to Marching Orders. Jeff, as difficult as that chapter was, it, the Tet Offensive and even your time in the Cold War, can you recall any fond memories that come to mind? Any, any good things you can think of? Some A story you could tell that just was a good part of it? Well, <laughs> sort of bad news, good news, but... Um, my favorite story was always that we got called out one night to a fire base out in the middle of nowhere. It was one of those very dark nights. They said the enemy was along a tree line. We could pick up the tree line, and we picked up some muzzle flashes. So we started raking the tree line, did it fairly heavily. We ran out of ammunition and said, we'll go back and rearm, refuel, and we'll come back out. Fortunately, it was not very far from our base camp, so it only took us about 40 minutes, I guess, to make the turnaround. Um, we came back on station, and they said, you know, there's somebody, um, there was a huge boulder. I mean, we're talking building-sized boulder sitting out in the middle of the field, not too far from their perimeter. And they said, somebody's out there. You want to take a run at that? So we started firing you know, do you have any troops in the area? No, we're good. We're all inside. Good. So we started firing on this bowler, and I mean, we got about half our ammunition expended. Uh, all of a sudden, you hear cease fire over the radio. What do you mean, cease fire? What, what, <laughs> what happened? Well, somebody's out there, but there are guys. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I said, oh, no, man, this is not good. <laughs> so... Uh, we went, fired on the tree line again, um, went back, rearmed, refueled one more time, came back and said, okay, what's the status? Well, the two guys just came in, and somehow they had dug underneath this rock wow. <laughs> and protected themselves because uh, the one guy had some shrapnel wounds, but you know he was going to live to tell about it, and the other guy was unscathed. Um, yeah, how do you tell that story if you're one of them? Yeah, exactly. I was under attack, but it was. <laughs> <laughs> we tried to hide behind this rock. 
coming home, it, it wasn't a welcoming experience for a lot of soldiers. Did you have to deal with that all that very much? I know you stayed in the military after leaving Vietnam, though, right? Yes. It, it, they told you when you got to the States, take your uniform off, which we did. We, we flew into Seattle-Tacoma um, and um, uh, took our uniforms off and got flights home. And so essentially there wasn't – and this is still early. This is 16, early uh, – mid-69, which was really before things started cooking hard. I didn't have all that sense. My family was welcoming. I had a big banner up over the garage and the house and and all that stuff. And I was still a bachelor at the time. So, And then they sent me to Fort Benning, Georgia, which was a large base. And uh, Columbus, Georgia, even though it's the second biggest city in Georgia, uh, was almost all military. I mean, so you you didn't have the same issues you might have had had you been in New York City or wherever. Probably the first I sensed uh, some real issues was I finished my tour at Fort Benning. I went to a school at Fort Knox. So I finished my tour at Fort Benning. I went to Fort Knox for a school, met my wife, got married, and they sent me back to Worcester. Um, Worcester was really good to me, the school um, and, and all that. But uh, you could sense amongst the student population that it was um, a bit of a struggle. And every once in a while, they would bring in a military speaker. And I'd go to these things, and you could tell right away that I was probably the only one in the room that was supportive of whatever he was saying because the others were kind of asking questions. Not not the only one, but um, so it, it, you know, at that time, I had a sensing that maybe um, they were not overly fond of of uh, the military nor of the Vietnam War. Uh, the Vietnam War was really winding down. I mean, I graduated in '73, so. Just two more years. Uh, yeah. And so how long did you stay in the Army, and what did you do in your, in your post-war years while you were there? Well, um, I stayed in for 25 years. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that you had to have two career branches. Um, while I was at Worcester, at any rate, eventually they had opened up a new branch, um, called Aviation Branch, and they transferred me over to Aviation Branch. I had asked for a secondary MOS of Comptroller um, since I had already been sponsored by the military for several schools. Um, they t- chose not to do that. And to, to be a Comptroller in those days, you went to the University of Syracuse. They had a special um, finance program that they trained military comptroller and it was a two-year program or something like that so instead they sent me to finance school at fort ben harrison in indiana and uh, i became a secondary uh, finance guy um eventually um i was sent back to um, or I was sent to Fort Hood, Texas, after Germany. Um, and when I was first there, 
Uh, I was still an aviator, but I never got an aviation assignment for whatever reason. But I did multiple things. When I first got there, maybe the best job I ever had, um, they made me the rear detachment commander for a unit uh, battalion that was going to the desert. The first to go through the National Training Center at Fort Irwin, California. Um, and I was left with about five soldiers and 57 tanks and a bunch of locked up buildings, and I was supposed to babysit them. Well, as it turned out, about two weeks after, all of a sudden there's 400 soldiers at our doorstep because this battalion, after coming back from the desert, was supposed to deploy to Germany for reforger. They sent in 400 fresh troops because the unit was losing 400 soldiers before they went on reforger, so they wanted them in there. So I ended up with 400 soldiers, 57 tanks, and had to find something for them to do. After that, I became an IG, an inspector general, and I did complaints. Um, fascinating stories. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I won't even go there, but... <laughs> There's got to be one you can tell us, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, there is. Uh, when you got a complaint, um, the complaints were basically about um, procedures and policies, that sort of thing, not law. Law was handled by the Judge Advocate General. Uh, procedures and policies were handled by the IGs. And where, where were you when you were in inspector? This is General? Fort Hood, still Fort Hood. So uh, one day I get a referral from Fort Buchanan, Puerto Rico, uh, a woman claiming to be the wife of a GI that was assigned to 2nd Armored Division, um, saying she hadn't received any support from him in the last year. So I called the guy's unit, and I said, send him up. I'd like to talk to him. And he comes in, and I have him in front of me, and I said, your wife has sent a letter saying that you're not supporting her. And he was drawing a BAQ, which is basically an allowance for the wife. Uh, and that money under military law belongs to her, not to him. So he said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm taking care of her. I'm taking good care of her. I said, well, she says you're not. He said, well, she lives in non-post housing. She's got access to my checking account. I said, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> What's her name? <laughs> and it wasn't the same wife. Oh, wow. <laughs> so at that point, you shut him up and say, go find your lawyer because <laughs> you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that wife. <laughs> Oops. So, Jeff, I ask this of every guest, adjusting to civ civilian life. It's difficult for many. Again, you stayed in for several years, but you did eventually retire. What advice would you give those who are struggling to make that transition? You know, that's a toughie. I am a commissioner on the Franklin County Veterans Service Commission, um, and we see the issues um, every week. Um, the soldiers that 
get out and suddenly, you know, things aren't the way they were uh, and they don't know how to handle it. And um, alcohol, drugs, um, just no initiative uh, to do anything. Um, so they don't make any money. They're broke. They need financial help and all that stuff. Um, the the bottom line is I was lucky enough when I transitioned to get a good job with the Huntington Bank, um, a job that I enjoyed and, and spent 15 years doing before I retired. That's a primary concern. Uh, when they get out of the service, if you can get them into a career or a job that they enjoy and are interested in and gives them enough money to live on, uh, you've got a good answer. So uh, I personally think we, we talk down there about sustained solutions. Sustained solutions quite frequently is that job. Obviously, a good family um, unit uh, helps an awful lot, um, but finding a job that is meaningful to you goes a far away. Any last thoughts as you look back on your military career? I mean, you think of the Cold War, you think of the Tet Offensive, even just joining the military. Any last thoughts that come to mind that you can think of looking back on it? I wouldn't trade one day of the 25 years for anything in the world. Um, it's kind of interesting. When my sons grew up and got to college and I suggested a couple of times that maybe they wanted to look at the military, uh, maybe not for a career, but for some period of time. And they had no interest. Um, on the other hand, if you were to ask them about their childhood, growing up in Germany and then Fort Hood, they were at Fort Hood for nine years, and then um, uh, going to um, back to Ohio, they would tell you it was the greatest childhood ever. I mean, they just loved it. And um, our community, we lived off post. Our community was made up of a mixture, but there were a lot of military and a lot of military kids, and, you know, it was just a great life for them, and, um, it, as it was for me. And, and that's a primary thing, is that it was really good for me, so it reflected down on them. So, Lieutenant Colonel Jeffrey Noble, thanks for joining us, and thanks for your service. You're welcome. Thank you. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of marching orders or let us know about a veteran you think should tell us his or her story. Email us at online at thisweeknews.com. That's online at thisweeknews.com, subject line marching orders. Check us out at thisweeknews.com or follow us on one of our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Everything is at thisweeknews. That's at thisweeknews. I'm Scott Hummel. Thanks for listening.